We leave the Gospel of Mark this morning and uh, take up a short paragraph in the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. The author is in the midst of a description of the ministry, the saving ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, how that came to be. And we pick up that explanation in the middle there at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. As often in the Bible, and as we were reminded this morning by Pastor Scott, it is said that the Lord Jesus came into the world with a purpose, a very specific purpose. He came to die for the salvation of his people. Or as we will read in verse 17, he came to make atonement for the sins of his people. The incarnation was not itself the salvation of the world, but it made possible the atoning death of God the Son that itself was the salvation of the world. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now, the verb used here and translated by the NIV as helps literally means to take hold or to grasp. And for more than a thousand years, this statement was held to mean that the Son of God took hold of the seed of Abraham in the sense that he assumed the nature of the seed of Abraham. The verse was read so that he took hold of the seed of Abraham was understood to be a description of the incarnation, God the Son assuming human nature. The early fathers, the medieval commentators, the 16th century reformers all took the verse that way. Some modern commentators continue uh, to uh, uh, support that interpretation. Modern exegesis, however, has largely abandoned it, and that for several reasons. Taking hold of the seed of Abraham, grasping The seed of Abraham is not an obvious way of saying that he took human nature or took a a man's nature to himself. There is nothing like a word for nature in the sentence. He took hold of us, not of our nature. The same word is used again in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 9. And there again it has that sense to take That is to take by the hand in order to help. And even here in this context, we read again of the Lord helping man, helping us in verse 18, this time with a different verb that means unmistakably to help. Taking the phrase that way, for surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, is an arresting way of expressing a powerful thought. The incarnation is in any case already present in verse 14. Now we get the purpose for it, that the Lord might help us in our need. In order to meet that terrible need, he grasped us, he took us by the hand, he laid hold of us and of our troubles by becoming one of us so that he could live for us and die for us. For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. A wonderful passage, our Heavenly Father, before us this morning, describing the very significance, the personal meaning, the importance to us of the coming into the world of the Son of God, of His incarnation, His conception in the womb of His virgin mother, and His birth there in Bethlehem, when Augustus was the Caesar, and when Quirinius was the governor. Lord, write this history upon our hearts, and still more its meaning, its magnificent meaning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hadn't thought of devoting my Sunday, Christmas Sunday sermon to this theme until very recently, but I've been reminded a number of times of late how paltry, how low, how unworthy a view of man, of human beings, many if not most people in our society have come to have in our day. It's no doubt an unwitting change of viewpoint in most cases, the result of incessant propaganda that for whatever reasons presents man to men as little more than a welter of sensual desires, a slave to forces beyond his control, whose existence is unrelated to anything eternal or transcendent. We live in an entertainment culture that panders to the less noble aspects of human life. And we live in a porn culture that panders to the lowest interests of man's mind and heart. Man is, in this view, merely another animal, however more intelligent, however more remarkable his powers. The theory of evolution, the practice of abortion, even of cremation, sexual promiscuity, the breakdown of the family and of healthy relationships generally, the tendency to compare man to machines in our technological society, the power that now exists to manipulate his life, even the origin of his life, in vitro fertilization, the prospect of cloning, and so on. All of this, the estimation of man as merely a unit of consumption in the ubiquitous advertising of a consumer culture, all of this and more has reduced man to something small. I'm sure most people are largely unaware of this. They have little or nothing to compare it to. But it does not take much observation to see how denatured human beings have become in modern life. And when in the media, in the television that modern man watches for hours every day, when in public life, all mention of eternity, of the next world, of the prospect of divine judgment is systematically removed from every conversation... And when these transcendent perspectives on human life are increasingly absent even from the preaching and teaching of the Christian church, no wonder that human beings struggle to know what their lives mean or whether they mean anything at all. Secularism, which is the worldview not only of explicitly unbelieving people, but practically speaking the worldview of many who call themselves Christians, secularism has no eschatology. It does not draw man toward a future consummation. It has nothing lasting, 
Nothing transcendent to offer human beings. The meaning of their life must be found here, in this brief existence, in this world. And for that reason, secularism has no convincing way of persuading human beings that their lives actually have transcendent meaning or eternal importance. They are an evanescent wisp, here today, gone tomorrow. In that, they are just another animal seeking food, sex, warmth, other basic pleasures until their existence is extinguished and they are forgotten. Do you realize how few human beings there are in this world who will be remembered by more than a very few people for more than a very few years after they are gone? Almost every one of us human beings will be completely forgotten as if we had never lived a few years only after we have died. And this is true no matter how we lived, wisely or foolishly, lovingly or selfishly. Secularism cannot surmount that simple fact. We don't really matter if this life is the measure. Secularist thinkers will, of course, say they can provide a moral foundation for human life and for human significance and meaning. They will argue that you don't need God and you don't need life after death. You don't need a future existence to justify a good life in this world, a meaningful and significant life in this world. But the fact is, that is all most of them ever do. They say they can do it. They don't actually do it. And you don't hear them doing it, do you? And when they try to, when it is demanded from them, their efforts are more than faintly pathetic. They end up saying almost universally what Albert Einstein used to say. There isn't any real meaning to human life, but you have to act like there is. Good luck trying to convince human beings whose whole nature cries out that man is important, meaningful, that his life has dignity and importance and value, that it matters how he lives his life. I say, try to satisfy the world with that explanation. You don't have any meaning. Your life is not of any real significance. Your life is nothing but atoms and cells and biological processes, and soon it will be snuffed out. But you should live as if you amounted to more than that. Live a lie, in other words. Environmentalism, the emotional investment of so many in our age and the apocalyptic warnings about climate change or the prospect of other environmental catastrophes. Psychologically speaking, these things are primarily ways to restore some higher, some lasting purpose and meaning to an otherwise all-too-brief and meaningless human existence. It's a way to restore a future to our understanding of our own selves and the meaning of our life. But such purposes amount to far too little and come far too late to repair the damage that a century of secularism has done to our view of what it means to be a human being and of the importance and sanctity 
of human life. It was while thinking about this most important and baleful development in modern life and worrying about its implications for our society and our culture and for the church in that culture that into my hands fell a volume of sermons on the nativity preached by Lancelot Andrews. It was a late 19th century edition of the sermons that Elder Hanula had purchased in London in 1998 and given me as a gift. Lancelot Andrews, if you remember, was one of the translators of the King James Bible. He was born of a seafaring father in 1555 and died the Bishop of Winchester in 1626. He was a godly man, the author of the immortal private devotions, from which prayers I have read to you more than once, and one of which prayers, at least, we use regularly in our worship here. He was an Anglican, a decided Protestant, but definitely not a Puritan. But he was recognized on all sides as a man of God. He was one of the most learned men of his day. He was also regarded as one of the greatest preachers in a day of great preaching. The volume contains 17 sermons, all preached on Christmas Day, all in the presence of King James I from the year 1605, when the first was preached, to the year 1624, When the last was delivered. In those 20 years, Lancelot Andrews was not the court preacher on Christmas Day only three times. What caught my eye as I opened the volume this year to read a Christmas sermon was the text and subject of the very first of these 17 sermons, the one preached on Christmas Day, 1605. The text was Hebrews 2.16, and the theme identified in the first paragraph, was that by the incarnation, God, and these are Andrew's words, God bestowed upon us a dignity which upon the angels he bestowed not. The Lord Jesus became a man, not an angel. And in doing so, he did far more for mankind than he ever did for the angels in heaven. Andrews took the statement in 2.16 as a reference to the Incarnation, as most interpreters did in his day. He took the verb to mean that the Lord had assumed the nature of a man and not of an angel, which is obviously true and true even from this text, though not perhaps from that sentence. The point is unchanged if we read 2.16 in the more likely way the NIV does and most modern English translations of the Bible, including the ESV. The Lord helps man in this mighty way. He never helped the angels in that way. We tend to think of the angels as above us, as greater than ourselves. And no doubt in some ways they are. They have powers that we do not have as human beings. But in dignity and honor, they fall below. They fall far below human beings. This was Lancelot Andrews' point in the sermon he preached to King James and the royal court there on Christmas Day, 1605. The incarnation is the greatest conceivable proof of the dignity and honor of mankind and of the limitless importance of a human life. The greatest thing that ever happened in heaven or on earth happened not for angels, but for men. Not to help angels, but to help human beings. Not to save angels, 
but to save mankind, the seed of Abraham. No fallen angel ever has been or shall be saved by the humiliation of the Son of God, by his taking to himself a new and human nature, and by his death on the cross. All of this was done for men, for men and women, for boys and girls, not for angels, not for seraphim or cherubim. God made the greatest conceivable sacrifice not to save angels, but to save human beings. The greatest miracle that ever occurred was performed not for the sake of angels, but for the sake of human beings, for people like you and me. This is the thought of Charles Wesley's beautiful and suggestive verse, Angels in fixed amazement around our altars hover with eager gaze. Adore the grace of our eternal lover. It is the proof of their righteousness, the good angels, that they are not jealous of this great gift that God has given to us and not to them, but stand ready, in fact, to serve in many different ways as that gift is first prepared and then as it is given. Already in Hebrews, at the end of chapter 1, we have read that angels, far from being the objects of God's saving love, are His ministers sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. We see this, of course, as we know, beautifully illustrated in the Christmas narrative of Matthew and Luke. Angels populate that history in a most remarkable way. It's the appearance of an angel to Zechariah in the temple that opens the first act of the drama of the world's redemption. Then an angel appears to Mary, then to Joseph, then to the shepherds accompanied by other angels. Then an angel appears to Joseph to warn him to flee with his newborn son to the land of Egypt. Our Christmas hymns are therefore full of angels. So is the Christian art of Christmas. The Annunciation to Mary, the angels to the shepherds, and so on. Angels everywhere but always as the servants of man's salvation, not as those who are saved themselves. There is no incarnation for the angels, no saving love, no atonement. Those angels who fell with the devil at their head are lost forever. God has made no effort to save them. Those who remained righteous at the time of the fall need no atonement. No, it is for the salvation of human beings that the world and its history take the shape that they do. No greater honor could be paid to the human race. No greater demonstration of the transcendent value of a human life. No more unyielding argument for the immortality of human beings can be imagined than that God, the Son, the Creator of heaven and earth, took upon Himself a human nature, became one with us, lived an ignominious life as His own creature, unrecognized in his glory as the Son of God, and then died the cruelest imaginable death to secure the forgiveness and the fellowship of men, human beings, forever. I've recently been reading a fascinating book. It's a biography of one of the 20th century's greatest mathematicians, the Hungarian Paul Erdős. The life of this man is fascinating on a number of levels. I'm always fascinated by the remarkable powers of the human mind, especially minds that are so much more powerful than my own. And Erdős's mind was extraordinarily powerful. The author of the book, 
regales his readers with one story after another of Erdős's prodigious mathematical genius. He was a world traveler, but everywhere he went, his mind was absorbed with mathematical problems and proofs. He published in a host of journals and in many different languages, hence the limerick composed by one of his colleagues. A conjecture both deep and profound is whether the circle is round. In a paper of Erdős, written in Kurdish, a counterexample is found. When Erdős heard that limerick, he tried to locate a mathematics journal published in the Kurdish language so that he could publish a paper in that language as well, but he couldn't find one. So influential was Paul Erdős in the world of 20th century mathematics that there is such a thing, I'd never heard of it before, maybe you haven't either, there is such a thing recognized by all practicing mathematicians as an Erdős number. If you were one of the 485 human beings who were privileged to have co-authored a math paper with Paul Erdős, he was very generous with his talents and often let much less talented men take joint credit for his discoveries and his proofs. I say, if you were one of those 485 who jointly published papers with Erdish, you have an Erdish number of one, a supreme honor among mathematicians. If you have an Erdish number of two, that means you have published a math paper with someone who published with Erdish. If your Erdős number is three, you have published with someone who published with someone who published with Erdős. The highest known Erdős number of a working mathematician is seven. Geniuses also fascinate because they tend to be unusually eccentric, and Erdős was no exception. He was always at work on math problems, usually in collaboration with other mathematicians around the world. Every day he would call one or another of them. No matter how far away, he knew every world-class mathematician's phone number, but none of their first names. One says that he doubts Erdish would know his first name even though they had worked together for 20 years. The only person he called by his first name was Tom Trotter, whom he called Bill. <laughs> As a 17-year-old math prodigy, when he was three years old, he could already multiply three-digit numbers in his head at three years of age. When he was a 17-year-old math prodigy, Erdős was hired by a Budapest shopkeeping father of a bright 14-year-old son, Andrew Vazanyi, to provide intellectual companionship and stimulation for his son. Sixty-seven years later, his first encounter with Erdős was still fresh in the man's mind. He came at the appointed hour to the store and knocked on the front door during store hours. No more the custom in Hungary than it is to knock on the front door of a store in America today. Such detachment from the ordinary world would be characteristic of this man's life until his death in 1996. After being taken to the boy in the back office of the store, Erdős's first words were give me a four-digit number. 2,532 came the reply. The square of it is 6,411,024, Erdős said. Sorry, I'm getting old and can't tell you the cube. 
How many proofs of the Pythagorean theorem do you know, Erdish asked. One, Fazanyi replied. I know 37. Do you know that the points of a line do not form a denumerable set? He showed the boy a proof and then announced he had to run. Strangely, even after that first encounter that was supposed to be intellectually stimulating to the younger boy, the two boys became friends. But Vazanyi was always ambivalent about being with Erdish, whom he really liked, because he was so strange that he drove the girls away. <laughs> he never married. He lived out of a battered suitcase. His friendships, such as they were, took little interest in anything besides math, were with people who stood agape at both his mental prowess and his personal weirdness. Now, I give all of that to you to set the context for this. Erdish was an atheist. He said he wasn't sure, but he didn't really believe. And all his life he spoke and acted as if God, at least the infinite personal God, whom people understand to have created the world, and we ourselves uh, created us ourselves, I say. He lived, he spoke, he acted as if he did not really believe. He spoke of God a lot, as Einstein did, but he did not mean by the word anything in particular, and he didn't believe in life after death. The only thing infinite Erdish believed in was numbers, mathematics. And in his view, man had taken only baby steps toward the understanding of reality, which alone can be found embedded in mathematics. It will be millions of years, he once said, before we'll have any understanding. And even then, it won't be a complete understanding because we're up against the infinite. A colleague expressed his viewpoint this way. Our brains have evolved to get us out of the rain, find where the berries are, and keep us from getting killed. Our brains did not evolve to help us grasp really large numbers, or to look at things in a hundred thousand dimensions. In Erdish's view, his many proofs, elegant and remarkable as they are, are just a small step toward real knowledge of reality, which can be known only in numbers. And that leads me to this question. How can a man so unbelievably, be, how can a man so unbelievably smart He's so stupid. Quite apart from the fact that numbers are hardly the most important index of reality, a thousand years from now, human beings won't know anything more about morality than they know now. Apart from that, here is a man who takes for granted the remarkable powers that God has given him and only an infinite personal God could give him. He takes for granted his own remarkable self-consciousness, the utterly breathtaking ability to see what most of us cannot see even when it is explained to us. The notion that such power, such elegant and unnecessary mental prowess, such longings to know the deep secret of life and reality should have resulted from some mindless process from the accumulation of random biological mutations is an example of almost inconceivable credulity. This man who demanded proof all his life embraced on an utter whim, utter nonsense about himself and about the origin of his personality 
and his gifts and his powers and his interests. This man was able to conceive the most difficult problems in math and see the solution to them in his own head. He everywhere saw the beauty and symmetry of mathematical reality, but he could not see what that beauty or his own ability to appreciate it said about himself, about creation, about the Creator. He could think of immense numbers and imagine one still far larger, but could not imagine the God who alone could both create such numbers and the mathematicians to appreciate them. He thought that numbers were the infinite reality and never stopped to realize that his fascination with the infinite was itself a mark the infinite God had left upon his being. And though he had these remarkable powers, these longings for the eternal, for understanding, for the realization of the truth, he imagined that when he died, that would be it. He was simply an animal, an organism, which happened to be preoccupied with proving theorems. All his fascination with mathematics, all of his pondering the deep secrets of reality were little different from a cow chewing his cud or a hen pecking at her seeds. When man loses sight of God, he begins himself to shrink. And the longer he thinks about himself without regard to the infinite personal God, the smaller he becomes, the less meaning he attaches to his life the less he's able to appreciate the significance of his own utterly remarkable nature. In the final analysis, this astonishing man, in his own view, and the view of many of his colleagues, will have amused and fascinated a few generations of mathematicians. That's all, nothing more. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. How unspeakably foolish and how unspeakably sad. Christmas is certainly a demonstration of many things about God, his goodness, his saving love, his power. The incarnation of God, the Son, is fabulously important in its own right and for a hundred different reasons. But one thing Christmas and the incarnation demonstrate is that human life is of infinite worth that human beings have a far greater significance than their short sojourn in this world by itself could ever give them. The very nature of man demonstrates this, of course. Men and women have been made in the image of God himself, in the likeness of God for fellowship with God himself. They have been given powers that are like God's own, however smaller in scale precisely so that they might have some grasp of God and His glory and appreciate the privilege of true communion with Him. They have been given the ability to peer into nature, to see God's genius on display. They think thoughts of almost impossible complexity and artistry precisely because they carry within themselves God's own nature. It is an act of the purest rebellion when they see that infinite genius on display and will refuse to acknowledge its origin. But compared to the demonstrations of nature, the incarnation is still a far, far greater demonstration of man's significance and transcendent and eternal worth. God the Son became a man to save men from their sin so that they might live forever. The greatest gift ever given the greatest suffering ever endured, the greatest sacrifice ever made, the greatest miracle ever performed was all done for human beings. 
Not for angels, but for human beings, for you and for me. My daughter and son-in-law have just returned from several years of living in St. Andrews, Scotland. And I know a number of you have visited St. Andrews and have visited the old cathedral that overlooks the sea. It's a precious spot for Christian believers because in the cemetery several illustrious Christians are buried, including Samuel Rutherford. But the cathedral nowadays is a ruin, a well-kept ruin, but a ruin nonetheless. Some of the walls are still standing, and it is not hard to visualize what it once was. The great church that once stood there, the high nave, the stained glass windows, the transept, and all the rest. But now it is a ruin. Grass grows where there once was a floor. The remnants of the structure are now all open to the elements. Well, man is like that. His nature and powers bear witness to what he once was and what he was made to be. But he is now a shell of his former self. He was made for God and for the knowledge of the great and high God. He pursues knowledge. He can't help himself. But he's lost the meaning, the purpose of the pursuit. His remarkable nature now exists without a point. He lives for himself because he is unwilling to live for God who made him and made man for himself. And living for himself, living for man, he shrinks. He was made to flourish living for God, but he's living now only for himself. And he becomes more like the animals and less like God the longer he does so. He knows this down deep. Something in the center of man screams when he's told that he is only a higher animal. When you tell a man or a woman, a friend, a workmate, a neighbor, that his life is of transcendent value and importance, you have an ally in making that argument in the man's own soul, in the woman's own heart. They know this. They know how important they are. Every instinct of their life cries out that they have been made for nobler things and have been made to live forever. But in bondage as man is to his rebellion against God, he has no choice but to forsake all that makes his life so wonderfully important and significant. For all of that is found in God and in God's eternal purposes for man. Christmas is the grandest conceivable demonstration that all of those human instincts are absolutely true. The reason man cannot stop believing in his own significance is because it is contrary to his own nature as God made it. Man was made for higher things. He was made to live forever. His life, therefore, goes on past death. Human beings are of transcendent worth. Christ coming into the world is the unassailable proof of that. It wasn't angels for whom he came but to help human beings, to atone for their sins, to grant them peace with God. We'll never understand the world or our own lives, nor will we make of them what we should, unless we remember the importance God places upon the lives of human beings, the seed of Abraham, and the extraordinarily great things he did to save them and to restore them to their true glory as those who have been made for Him. Amen.